Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Elizabeth Pullman, professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School. We'll be discussing her new article, Startup Governance, which is forthcoming in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Elizabeth, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. Before we get started in discussing this paper, I wonder if you might discuss what some of your motivation for writing it is and where does it fit into the literature? What gap does it fill? Sure. Well, the paper is Startup Governance, and my motivation in writing it was to provide a holistic account of governance that shows the special features and changes over time in startups. And my motivation in the literature was that there's a pretty big literature, at least insofar as there is in in venture capital, about the vertical issues of venture capital contracting. So there are papers, famous papers by like Black and Gilson and Kaplan and Stromberg and Gilson and Gompers and Lerner and uh, Gordon Smith and Frieden Ganor, those papers are about the vertical issues between the venture capitalists and the entrepreneurs or founders. And they focus a lot on agency costs and a lot on the mechanisms of venture capital contracting. And then there's a few papers on the horizontal issues in startup governance. Bobby Bartlett wrote a paper in 2006 about the conflicts that can arise between the preferred shareholders. And then there's a Bratton and Walker paper from 2013 and then Bartlett paper from 2015. And those are about the conflicts that can arise between the preferred shareholders and the common shareholders. But it's a pretty small literature on the horizontal issues in startups, and, and they're important papers. And Bobby Bartlett's paper about the conflicts that can arise between the preferred was really the closest paper that came to how I see how startup governance works as a whole, because what he did was he described how in an effort to try to deal with the vertical issues that come up between the VCs and the entrepreneur founders, they use syndicated and staged financing, and the mechanism that they use to constrain the agency costs vertically gives rise to potential conflicts horizontally between themselves because the preferred may have gotten stuck in different rounds of financing that comes with different terms. And so over time, the preferred stockholders can also have conflicts between them. That paper is really important because it shows something that's um, distinctive about startup with the way that the vertical and the horizontal conflicts arise, but it didn't describe the bigger picture and how it, it moves over time in a way that increases. And so I wanted to do that because I wanted to set out a bigger picture of the different types of conflicts that arise potentially between all of the participants in a startup. So that's what motivated me to do it. On the whole, I would say there's also a relatively small literature on startups in the universe of business law literature. And they have become increasingly important in our economy and in our society. So I think that just as a whole, uh, more work should be done generally on startups and venture capital-backed startups and governance. It's amazing, actually, to me that a paper like this one that I wrote hadn't been done yet by this time, and that there were so few papers even on the horizontal conflict, and almost none besides specific papers about the conflicts that come up between the common shareholders even in startups. So all of that made me want to write this paper. 
So this is a paper that takes kind of a full view of the cathedral uh, when it comes to startup governance. I wonder if we could talk about maybe an implication of, of just the idea of this paper, which is that startups and their governance is special. I wonder if you could maybe discuss why they're special, what that difference is if I go out and start a fast food company or a construction company that might even become a larger concern. Why is that maybe different than starting a technology company or or what we might call a, a startup today? Sure. So this is something actually that gets discussed a fair bit in the law and entrepreneurship literature and and group of scholars. Some people would say, look, a startup is a startup if you're doing a new business. But others would say, well, there's a difference between a business that is doing something that is innovative versus a business that may be a new business, but it's doing something that is replicative of other types of business models or products or services that are being offered in in this way in the world already. And There is something different about innovative businesses in part, which is that they have a really high level of uncertainty because often it's not even known whether whatever they're setting out to do can be done as a technological challenge or or if the model of distribution or service will, will even work. So there's a high level of uncertainty. And then with innovative startups as well, they typically have negative cash flow, a high failure rate, and a lack of tangible assets. So all of that combined means that traditional banks won't lend typically to innovative startups. And due to those characteristics, angel investors and venture capital investors are typically the main investors that come in. Entrepreneurial finance drives a different style of governance because of these mechanisms, for example, that venture capitalists have used to try to deal with the special issues that come up in innovative startups like using stage and syndicated financing, etc. So what's really different about startups is that the definition that I'm using is really venture capital-backed startups because that's a type of financing that comes in to support and finance innovative businesses that have certain types of characteristics that are challenges. Once you have venture capital, they invest in series for convertible preferred stock. And once you have that, then you have this kind of layered governance with different types of shareholders with different terms over time. So it's the difference between if I want to start a hotel, uh, that's a a well-trodden path. Uh, People know how to build a hotel, how to staff a hotel, and how to find guests. But if I want to come up with a website that gets people to rent out the rooms to perfect strangers on a nightly basis, that might be a little bit more risky or speculative. And those are two different businesses. There's also another thing that's different about the example that you used, although you could quibble about this. But another feature typically of innovative venture-backed startups is that they're typically aiming at really high levels of growth or scale. And so for some of the types of examples you use, like starting a hotel, maybe you're imagining like, oh, it could be a global chain, it could be big. So yes, you could quibble on this. But typically another thing that's going on with the startups is that they are aiming at very high levels of growth and scaling compared to a kind of traditional replicative business that's already been done before, like opening a new restaurant or something like that. So you highlight the involvement of venture capital as being one of the distinguishing features between a startup and a more traditional firm. Could you maybe discuss some of the differences in the capital structure that we might see between startups and a firm that we might see as more traditional? Sure. In startups, you typically see some sort of founder putting in some money or friends and family round or looking to angel investors at the seed stage. And 
angel investors are often the first source of outside funding, and they're typically wealthy individuals. Often they have backgrounds themselves as successful entrepreneurs, and they're investing in early-stage companies, and often the forms that they use might be convertible debt or some type of kind of simple investment instrument that can be done with low transaction costs. And they're hoping to bet on companies that will eventually be really high growth, and they came in really early. And then the next stage usually is to go to venture capitalists and to raise a real round, a Series A round of financing, and that's typically convertible preferred stock. And venture capitalists uh, typically invest in a syndicate so that there'll be one lead investor, then there'll be other venture capitalists that go in on the round, and they typically stage their financings. And part of the staging is a mechanism by which it's effectively constraining potentially agency costs with the founder entrepreneur because instead of giving all the money that you might foreseeably think they would need to grow the business in one round, you stage it so that there are milestones and you see if the company is going well and at that point you might want to put more money in, etc. And so venture capitalists typically invest in a series of rounds through staged and syndicated financing, and not every round will have the same group of investors that often changes over time. So that's been kind of the typical history of it. And then in recent years, we've seen a number of other types of investors come into the private company space. So you see mutual funds and hedge funds and pension funds and sovereign wealth funds and other types of investors that we previously didn't see much of, but now has become much more common in, in later stage companies especially. So that's quite different than funding for a traditional company that might get a conventional bank loan or other types of financing. You mentioned at the top that one of your motivations for writing this paper was to really document the horizontal and vertical conflicts that can emerge in a startup and its governance. Could you discuss maybe what makes a startup distinct in terms of agency relationships and costs versus more the, I guess, maybe the classic Jensen and Meckling model and, and some of the, the work in that area? Yeah. One interesting thing about startups is that they have not just this classical vertical agency story, but they have also this interesting horizontal story. And even more than that, typically the participants are serving in overlapping roles. So for example, a venture capitalist that invests is a shareholder. And in that sense, you might think of them as like the classic kind of principal agent vertical role but they also may take a board seat. In that sense, they're both the principal and the agent. And similarly with founders and executives and with employees that are getting stock options, they're also shareholders. And so in startups, you have almost all of the participants having stock or being stock option holders. And they may have other affiliations and they may have different terms to whatever stock they have. And so all of that means that you have people serving in overlapping roles And it could be that they're involved in both vertical and horizontal tensions. And because they have these in in different terms, it's possible that they could be in a position of having diverging interests. So that's quite different than the typical story of principal agent and shareholder and, and manager. Kind of with that, startups might have interesting agency relationships at the top as between the founder and the board. Could you trace some of the history of VCs having a fire the founder mentality in days past versus maybe a more contemporary attitude of being founder friendly? What has that shift meant for investor monitoring and board governance and what implications might it have going forward? Yeah, that's a great question. If things really have changed and some of it's market dynamics, it depends how far back you want to go. But I would say, 
you know, in the 1980s and 90s, tech companies and their investors, they were typically aiming for an IPO. And to get to an IPO back in the 80s or early 90s, typically you'd have to have a company show that they had a few profitable quarters and they were they were growing revenue. And that's what it would take to get the banker to agree like, yeah, it's time to do an IPO. You've had however many uh, profitable quarters of increasing revenue. And there was, at the time, you know, to, to get the IPO off the ground, you do a roadshow or whatever. And there was a sense from... I think the bankers that they would want somebody in the kind of CEO role that looked credible to get the IPO done. And so at the time you would see, you know, like IPO was the aim. You were trying to get to profitability and it was pretty typical at the time to have venture capitalists controlling the board by the time you got a few years in because of the way that they were raising money. Then every time you would raise more money, more seats would be going to the venture capitalists. So the venture capitalists would put in some other experienced executive and, and remove the founder CEO by the time you were IPOing. And that wasn't always the case, but it was a pretty typical path, like back in the 1980s and 90s. And that changed a bit by the time you got to the mid 90s and the late 90s with the dot com era. And one thing that happened was that Netscape IPO'd when it was unprofitable. And <laughs> that changed the game a little bit because it showed you could do an IPO even though they hadn't been at profitability yet. And you could also do it like with a founder still in place. And so the era changed a bit already in the dot-com boom. And the thing that really changed, I think, beyond that was that there was then another generation of people who had made some money from the dot-com era. And those people who had been founders turned into venture capitalists. And so they could identify much more with the role of founder and they wanted to support founders in that way. And there was much more information by the time we got to the 2000s or mid 2000s about how to even do this because now there were like blogs and books and mentors everywhere in Silicon Valley. And there was just a lot more known about how to be an entrepreneur and how to grow a business and scale a startup. And then there were some other things that started to change, like Andreessen Horowitz with Ben Horowitz and Mark Andreessen were both people who had been successful founders. And then they started a venture capital firm together that had a philosophy of being founder-friendly and supporting founders. That gave them a competitive advantage because founders liked working with Andreessen Horowitz. And that started to change the game quite a bit because then VCs started to realize like, oh, maybe it would actually be good to be more founder friendly. And the other thing that happened around, around the era of Facebook was when Facebook was coming up before its IPO, there was the rise of the secondary markets like shares post and second market in which there was then secondary trading of private company stock. And that was also important to the kind of current era because once you had these places where you could do secondary trading, it allowed some of the key people, founders and executives to get some liquidity at some point before actually doing an IPO. And so that relieved kind of some of the pressure for the liquidity and kept them, the founders in and potentially willing to stay private for longer. And then another thing that happened was that many more companies were exiting by an M&A deal. And VC firms understood that having the founder in place for the M&A deal could be a valuable asset because it would help with getting the M&A deal done. And so they weren't so quick to try to remove founders because first of all, they had more information and experience in mentoring. They could be valuable at an M&A exit, which was much more common. 
they might be willing to stick around for a while if they could get a little bit of liquidity from a secondary market. And there was a competitive advantage to being founder friendly. And then on top of all of that, huge influx of money came in to, to be invested in the private space. And that meant that whereas in earlier eras, like in the 80s and 90s, there had been not so much venture capital money and a pretty good amount of good companies to invest in. And so the companies were really eager to get venture capital money and they didn't have that many choices sometimes when they would go pitch. They would take the deal that they got. In recent times, there's been a lot more private capital available. And so for some of the companies that have had kind of the most buzz, they get to choose who they take as investors and there's a lot of demand for their stock. So they have more leverage to bargain for founder-friendly governance as well. So so all of those changes have um, really changed the game to, to now, but that again could change. <laughs> it, it may not be forever, but that's how I would kind of think about tracing the timeline of how we've gone from a fire the founder mentality to one that's been more founder-friendly. So it's it's no longer a matter of going up and down Sand Hill Road and trying to find some of the few players there to, to invest. Now there's a lot more competition for a smaller group of investable companies. It's not like that for all companies. Of course, some <laughs> really are looking for funding and it can still be hard. And some might still go to Sand Hill Road. But for some companies, it's been a lot easier in recent times to get funding than it might have been in earlier periods. Yeah. Yeah, def- definitely all a, a relative matter. I'm, I'm sure it's not, <laughs> not easy to raise VC capital, even when it is easy comparatively. At some point, you note that a startup needs to go public or, or be acquired, or I guess it can go bankrupt first. Uh, those are kind of the three options that it has. And there's a well-known liquidity demand account for why a startup is going to need to go public or be acquired versus just stay a private company and live off its profits. Investors and employees who have shares want to be able to sell those shares, so they want liquidity, as you mentioned. But you also mentioned, I think, a really interesting additional pressure point for reaching an exit, which is not liquidity in the shares, but the ability to liquidate the firm's governance, to move from complex contractual arrangements around governance to a more standardized kind of public company model. Uh, Why might that be a pressure point and should it be scrutinized more closely by scholars or market participants? Yeah, well, I think that once you start to see how startup governance works and how over time, because with each round of financing, it typically is bringing in more participants with potentially diverging interests, you see that over time, it builds complexity into the capital structure and into the governance and that potential for conflicts arises. And there's been some great work, like Gordon and Strebulev have a good paper that analyzes unicorns and the preferences that come with stock and how if you look at the valuations, actually, once you take into account all the preferences, it's not necessarily the stated valuation. That paper points out that typically by the time you're like a you know late stage company, for example, you might have eight rounds or more of financing. And each of those rounds of financing might have different terms with it. And there was typically a suite of contracts that have been built up over time and amended as well with voting rights, etc. And so that's a pretty complicated structure. On top of that, the employees have been granted stock options that vest over time. And they may have been granted options with different terms regarding pricing, etc. And so that adds complexity as well, that the very workforce is also building up liquidity pressure over time. And there's terms to their grants 
So at a certain point, getting to the end of like a 10-year term of whatever the VC's fund was, and employees also have options that have terms. So over time, that complexity built and in some sense going public is a chance to reset that and to relieve some of that governance complexity because it becomes harder and harder to raise another round or find some financing that get to a place where you're still growing and not putting the different participants in conflict with each other regarding their interests. So that's a complicated thing about being a late stage startup. It's, I think that part of the story has been that companies want to stay private and that's perhaps true for many companies, but it I think hasn't been discussed as much is that it's still hard to stay private that long and that you're going to have to deal with a bunch of issues like what do we do about our employees and how do we get them some liquidity and then what do we do about when terms expire and those sorts of questions. And so it's not costless to remain private either and going public that can start to weigh in favor at a certain point of going public in addition to the need for liquidity. So I think it's both a liquidity need and governance complexity is going on for many companies. I, th I think that's such a great insight. We think about private companies as having a lot of private ordering flexibility, and that might be an advantage that they have sometimes over public companies, but the relative simplicity of a, of a public company model might be more advantageous in, in some situations. So you do have that opportunity to go public and simplify things a good deal. Elizabeth, what does this paper say about monitoring failures that we see, it seems increasingly in the news with a lot of unicorn startups uh, where we see firms that are still private but are quite important and quite big in, in the cultural landscapes. And we see just failures by management to monitor uh, the business and by directors to monitor management. Much of the literature assumes that venture capitalists will be strong monitors. And to some extent, they are, and that can make sense because they do have strong incentives to monitor startups and their portfolios because they've made financial investments and they negotiate for board seats. But in other ways, that assumption is based on the traditional agency cost model, which focuses just on the vertical relationship between the VCs and the entrepreneurs. And that misses some of, of what's really happening that can help explain why we see some of these monitoring failures. And it's not to say that all startups have this problem, but there is something about the structure of startup governance that can predictably result in this in some companies because the venture capital entrepreneur relationship isn't simply a vertical principal agent relationship, but it's part of the system. And what the system features is that the venture capitalists are in overlapping roles. So they're both potentially sitting on the board, but also investors. And what that means is that they are very focused on the growth of the company because with the increasing governance complexity that happens over time, you, you need the company to keep growing in order to reach an exit that generates returns that doesn't put people in conflict with each other. And so growth is, by its nature is going to be the focus of the company. And the venture capitalists that are sitting on the board are highly aware of that. And there's an incentive to, to focus more on growth than putting in place like compliance systems or internal controls, especially at the early stage where you don't even know if the company is going to work, if people want the product or service. And so there's that. And then on top of that, because of the overlapping roles, it means that many of the directors, whether they're the founders or executives or the venture capitalists, are both the monitor and the subject. They have this dual status. And that can engender conflicts of interest and it can weaken oversight. So venture capitalists are often in a position where they're not just sitting on the board, but 
they may see themselves more as investors because they know there's another round and they may be asked to invest again. They also typically venture capitalists sit on a bunch of boards because they have a portfolio of companies. So um, that might reinforce their perspective as an investor. And they also are repeat institutional players that they have a reputation. And so they care in some instances about being understood as founder friendly or making sure that they want to have a reputation that allows them to get um, opportunities to invest in other good companies and deals. And so that can make it so it's not in their personal interest to be the strictest monitor. And so all of those things can weaken board oversight um, in a way that helps explain why if, if venture capitalists are such strong monitors, we would still see some of these monitoring failures happening in some startups. What closing thoughts or takeaways would you like listeners to have from this conversation and from the article? Andrew, I think we had a, a great conversation and we got to cover a lot of the key parts of the article. In many ways, my hope was to set out this framework of startup governance so that we would have an analytical framework or way of discussing how startups have these features that involve people serving in overlapping roles, that they're heterogeneous shareholders, and that you can have both horizontal and vertical tensions and that they will grow over time. Those are the key parts of the article, really. And the last part of the article talks a bit about startup governance and corporate law. And I, I hope that that's something that we can talk more about in the future and that the literature goes into more. And it's a, an area that I think deserves more thought about what should startup governance look like? And at what point do we expect companies that are maturing to adopt more public style governance and to put independent directors on the board or to put in place internal controls? That's something that deserves some attention going forward, I think. So, so those are things that I'm thinking about when I'm out talking with people. People want to talk about like what, what would be a better way of putting in place a, a startup board or whatnot. So I think those are things to think about for the future. But this has been a great conversation, and I thank you so much. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you on today, and thank you for coming on. Our guest today has been Elizabeth Pullman, professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School. We've discussed her recent article, Startup Governance, which is forthcoming in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review. I'll link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Elizabeth, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, Please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app. We'll let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.